0: At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits.
1: Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what?
0: But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people, all working toward the ultimate goal. Best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit.
2: You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.
1: If I were looking for a white rabbit,
2: I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you forced me to use force! Why do you sell me by a rabbit instead? I imagine... Right now, you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KV industry. This is episode 44. My name is Alan Messick. I'm a rabbit judge and rabbit geek from California. I'm joined each and every episode with the Vogish and Articulate, Bryony Smith, our ARBA Standards Chair from Kansas. Bryony, how are you?
0: Doing well. Um, well, I mean, I say that, but I'm in those last throes of convention prep. And are we ever really doing well at that point?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty much. It's like it's it's sort of calm, but, you know, it's just the calm before the storm. And then then there's like zero time left to pack everything you need to do.
0: Uh, yes. You, you know, you think you're all prepared and then there's just there's never quite enough time at the end. It always, be, you know, ends up being kind of crazy. But, you know, I'm getting there.
1: Do you keep uh, lists as you uh, get through the, the weeks before convention? Like to do lists?
0: I do. I am a list maker. And normally it's like, I will be, you know, at work or doing something totally different thing. I've got to get this done before convention. So I'll like add it to a little list on my phone, but it's not like an organized thing. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) you know, when it pops up at a random time. Um, But yeah, I I do like lists. I like lists a lot.
1: Yeah, they they definitely help. I'm like old fashioned. I use scratch paper and do like my daily lists and, and they're total disaster. And then I have like the list in my phone, which is the, the list for like two weeks ahead. So last night I started my convention list. I'm like, I really need to start this now because it's like a week away and I'm going to forget something if I don't start putting it in my phone because I'm going to lose the paper otherwise.
0: Yes, it it is. I will say better than last year. Last year was, of course, my first convention as standards committee chair. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes with that. So at least I know what I'm doing there. You know, I went through <laughs> that whole, am I forgetting anything? And of course, took like a bunch of extra stuff last year. But, but at least I know, you know, I was good to myself. I, whenever I go out to the bar and I'm like, um, how good was I to my future self the last time I packed up? <laughs> like, was I all neat and organized about this? So we'll see with my travel equipment. But I was good to myself with the standards committee stuff because it was indoors and it was nice.
1: Yeah, and we were all a, a bit out of practice last year. I remember how we were just like, "How do we do this again?" Meanwhile, we've been doing conventions for twenty to thirty years. But I, I just had a hard time like figuring out how to do things again this year. I feel like I'm a little more organized and ready to go.
0: Yes, that year off. I mean, yeah, it just threw everything off, and and I don't know. I I just keep thinking about the last time I left Reno. It was a great convention. You know, overall, it was a wonderful convention for me personally, like lots of good things happened just going home thinking, oh, I can't wait till next year and see all my friends and then womp, womp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep.
1: And uh, yeah. And I'm I, I, how long is your drive? I'm looking forward to a six hour drive <laughs> for once. How long is your drive from uh, Kansas?
0: 22 hours.
1: Oh, man. Yeah.
0: And my car is in the shop. It's getting body work and it had better be ready by Wednesday. Oh. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, Tuesday, actually.
1: Uh, and do you you drive the whole thing or do you split it up into two days?
0: Oh, I split it up into two days. There's no way I can go straight through. And, and honestly, rabbits, I know for some people and some breeds, they really prefer the straight through. Um, Dutch are pretty good travelers. Um, so are spots. And they don't really eat and drink when they're moving. Hmm. Like when the vehicle's in motion. I know, you know, I will pull in to get gas and I will all of a sudden kind of hear a little rustling in the back and you know, here I'm drinking and this, that and the other. But when they're moving, they're really not consuming anything. So I don't know, I feel like for mine, um, you know, having that stop where they eat, they drink, you know, helps them out. I also get there the first day always, because I feel like they do better. If they come in early, of course, they have some time to recoup from the trip. But also they come in and then just the activity builds around them, rather than like waiting until the last day and just bringing them into utter chaos.
1: I never thought about it that way, but I think you're totally right because rabbits are are prey animals and they're creatures of habit. So they get accustomed and they adapt to their environment. And by show day, they are, you know, those are the new surroundings to them. So they're going to be less apt to go off feed or be a total, you know, cray cray on the table, right?
0: Well, I make no guarantees because I actually <laughs> am bringing, um, I have a junior buck that's like, oh, I entered him, and I'm like He's going to be like right at four months old, which is about as early as mine are, could even be competitive. So he will either like blossom in this last week or he'll be kind of a multi little jerk.
1: <laughs> is he blue? <laughs> One of,
0: the two. of course. <laughs> of course
1: <laughs> he is. I, okay. I'm going to avoid that blue Dutch aisle if I know he's down there because <laughs> I will get hosed. There's no question. <laughs> it's a blue thing. We've talked about it many times. So this is our convention sort of episode. We know we've got so many listeners that will be tuning in to this episode as they make their way across the country to Reno next week. And uh, in the... Uh, this is a good episode i'm really excited we've got a great interview coming today with dr luke Farr from texas a&m university uh, one of the co-authors of rabbit production the 10th edition which just came out it's been more than a decade since the republication so really good episode for listening it's a long one so uh, hopefully it'll take up some of those hours on those freeways and highways whatever you want to call them on the way to reno for all of our uh, listeners and i believe we're taking it back to the 90s in this episode for the history
0: section We're going all the way back to the 80s, 1982, in fact. Um, That that dates
1: me for once.
0: uh, No kidding. Well, (laughs) not me. But (laughs) um, world events, um, the Lebanon War began that year. Also, the Falklands War, which was kind of the the bragging piece, I guess, for now disgraced Prince Andrew of England, Um, the Duke of York. Also, in 1982, the movie E.T. came out um the computer was named time's man of the year oh my the population of china exceeded a billion the global surplus of crude oil caused gasoline prices to collapse wouldn't that be nice mm. um and ciabatta bread was invented by a baker in verona italy notable births for that year there were many of them but probably two of the ones we've heard about um a lot recently um, William, Prince of Wales, and his wife, Catherine, Princess of Wales, were both born in 1982. And the I have a copy of the 1982 Domestic Rabbits, a January-February edition, where they did a recap of the 1981 convention in Syracuse, New York, that I thought was interesting. Um, the entry number was 6,300 total, Rabbits and Cavies Youth and Open, which is, to us sounds like a very small convention. In the 90s, they did grow very rapidly. We got to that you know, 20,000 mark into the early 2000s, that 25,000 mark. But back then when they were reporting 32,000 members, there were only 6,300 at convention. Yes, it was farther east, but they just weren't that big at the time. Um, you didn't have people you know, who went every year from every part of the country the way that you do now. Um, So that was actually, you know, they commented favorably about the numbers, which I thought was interesting. There are pictures of the best-in-show animals on the front of the DR. And by our standards today, the rabbits look very flat. (laughs) Um, You know, you can't say, oh, they were bad. You know, they were best-in-show animals for the time. I, I just like to look at these things and think how far we've come. You know, and if we're doing this hobby correctly in 40 years, we will look back at some of our best in show winners and think, wow, we've come a long way. Um, So it's always interesting to see that from the past and just kind of look at it with some appreciation about the incredible, you know, improvements that we've been able to make in this hobby. I noticed that the president, and and we talked about this a little bit in Kevin Waitley's episode, keeps referring to the association as the American, not the ARBA, um, which was interesting to me. Um, There are also notes of the meeting minutes, and this made me laugh a little bit. There was a motion by Vice President Doc Reed to buy an additional 13.2 megabytes of disk space for the (laughs) ARBA computer.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) They had had recently... (laughs) Got that was, was that the
1: computer that uh, that Glenn talked about in in the interview that you did, and he he described getting rid of it that day, and they just like chucked it off the side of the like the second story. It must have been that one,
0: probably so. Um, because they do talk about um in the secretary report, Ed Pyfer talks about it says ARBA now computerized. What does it mean, and what now can we do to give our members better service with our new computer? Those are just a couple of questions that have probably been crossing your minds. We now have all 32,000 of our members on computers. This enables us with a touch of several keys, and we know it was several back then, <laughs> to bring your entire membership for the screen tube for our viewing. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. It wasn't 32,000 once. This viewing gives us your permanent, from now on, membership number, your name and address, date of joining ARBA, renewal date, expiration date, etc. With this setup we can give a variety of printouts of information on state zip or breed listings. We can also print out expiration notices and address labels for use in other programs. Later when we can afford more disk space we will go into word processing and registration forms. So very interesting. Um 13.2 megabytes is like not enough to do a photo with now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the the green screen and the, and the and like the the text, the white text of like, it looks like something out of ET literally on the screen. And that's what they had. No mouse, forget it.
0: Oh, yeah, no mouse. It was all like keystrokes, DOS programming, no windows. I mean, it would look absolutely foreign to us now. But I mean, something that we think is just an absolute dinosaur and a joke was very helpful then. I mean, and someone had to input all 32,000 of those members by hand the first time.
1: Oh, my God. We have yeah. come a long way, not only in, in rabbits uh, on the best in show. By the way, what was uh, what were the best in shows on the front cover of that uh, from, from the Syracuse convention?
0: Um, so, in the open convention, best in show Kavy was a silky owned by Peggy Fry of California. Best in show Rabbit was a Californian owned by Brian Rice from Indiana. Youth best in show Kavy was an American owned by Gerald Penn of Ohio. And Best in Show Rabbit Youth was a Florida white owned by De DeBoer, also from Indiana. Hmm.
1: Wow, a Californian! That's it's been a while since a Californian has won Best in Show at convention. Maybe, maybe it was dating back to then.
0: It could be. Know.
1: It's been a long time.
0: Yeah, but it's it's very interesting, and again, just to see how convention has grown and how it's become a must-attend event for so many more of the membership, which I think is is pretty awesome.
1: Oh yeah, everyone's jazzed. I mean, <laughs> I see the, the the griping, you know, that some people do. I try to avoid Facebook, but the griping about the fact that there's thirteen thousand entries coming up uh, this week in Reno, and it's like, yeah, well, it's a West Coast convention. We've had some <laughs> we've had some blunders in our in our culture in the last couple of years. Like, we're we're thrilled. That's a good number. But to think that conventions were elated in 1982 for an entry of around six thousand, that's that puts a lot into perspective.
0: It really does. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, we're just lucky that this many people are still persevering in the <laughs> hobby for all the challenges that we've faced and that we continue to face. Um, it's interesting that sometimes economic factors haven't really dissuaded rabbit people all that much. Um, I do remember the largest convention we ever had, the largest entry number, was 2005 in Indianapolis, which was not too long after Hurricane Katrina and gas prices had shot through the roof. Um And then in 2008, when we had the housing crisis, um, that was Louisville, Kentucky convention. That was actually the convention where the largest number of animals crossed the table. And it was huge despite, you know, what was going on worldwide. So I tell my husband that rabbits are cheaper than alcohol and therapy. And it seems that a lot of people, you know, find that... For whatever reason the hobby is a priority for them um and maybe you know we can economize in other ways but that this is something that we're still dedicated to it's a part of our lives and it's something that you know that brings us joy yes, we all need does. that
1: uh it was in its therapy to a lot of us let's face it you know rabbits give us a lot of joy whether we're alone in the barn or traveling two thousand miles to see our rabbit family across the country like this is this is what we love
0: so, yeah, when I am running around like a crazy person all week, it's therapeutic <laughs> for me. Just remember that. <laughs>
1: yeah, just keep telling yourself that.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we look forward to seeing everyone in Reno. And we want to remind all of our listeners and our new listeners, so I'm sure we'll pick up some this week uh, as everyone travels uh, to Reno, that the rabbitry on Facebook will continue to uh, serve as our hub for... All of our episodes, we're at episode 44 now. We've got, uh, they're all archived there. So links and photos and descriptions of all of those previous episodes are on The Rabbitry on Facebook. So if you're not following it, please follow it, like it, share it with your friends while you're on Facebook and in the passenger seat on those long drives this week. Uh, let more people know. And uh, regardless of how you listen to us, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google Play or Audible, the Best in Show podcast is on every single one. So it doesn't matter if you're on your phone, your iPhone, your Android or your computer, you can find us. It's not hard and it's totally free. So make sure you uh, subscribe to us on whichever platform you do listen to podcasts and your five star reviews and comments mean the world to us. And we do love to read them. Um, And you can also email us uh, those comments if you don't want to drop it online. Brian and I have a podcast email. It's show at gmail.com and i believe brian you have a comment this week you like to read from one of our listeners
0: we do we got a lovely email from stephanie cotting who said i just want to say thank you for putting your time and energy into this podcast i'm a show mom in california trying to get information to help my 13 year old daughter with her hobby i recently learned of this podcast and have learned so much from it it is professionally done and so about invaluable to me thank you which is wonderful. We are happy to help Stephanie. It makes us happy to know that what we're doing makes a difference.
1: Thank you, Stephanie.
0: Hey, Alan, what do you call that favorite bathroom corner of a rabbit's cage?
1: Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, Bryony. I believe we were just talking about it a a minute ago. It's that old Dutch buck, the blue one that uh, makes the most disgusting corner with all of his buckiness.
0: Yes, that corner he picks and builds upon layer upon layer of pee, little poo, and some hair just to get it all calcified and stuck together.
1: Oh, yeah. Moult, especially this time of year, fur, poop, pee, it's the number one cause for rusting and failure of cage floors in our rabbit cages, and trying to get to that corner is Like the worst part of doing this job, I have to get down on my knees to those bottom stacks. I put my headlight on over my forehead and I get down there and I scrub away every time, especially with those old gross bucks.
0: Yes, getting that buck sludge off the cage floor is a chore, but I think I may have found a solution.
1: Oh, do tell wise one.
0: I just received this cool contraption from KW Cages called the Magic Corner Cleaner. It's designed to fit perfectly in the corner with special blades that fit in between the wires and make quick work of removing any built-up debris. All of that nasty buck sludge. I well, found out that it works like magic.
1: Well, I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, just a reminder to all of our listeners that KW Cages continues to sponsor our podcast, and they do feature products just like the Magic Corner Cleaner on their website, kwcages.com. They will be at the convention, of course, in Reno with a full display. If you order now on kwcages.com and use the promo code, the rabbit during your checkout on orders over $75, you get $10 off. So get your pre-orders in for convention and, or get a mail to your doorstep. So again, check out kwcages.com. In this podcast episode, we welcome Dr. Luke Farr from Texas. Dr. Luke Farr earned his PhD from Oregon state university in 1982, where his doctoral dissertation investigated rabbit meat production efficiency. He studied and collaborated along with pioneers in the rabbit study and science, including Dr. Cheek, Dr. Patton, and Dr. McNitt. Together, these four men authored the rabbit production book, which is globally considered a top source for up-to-date information across the many facets and experience levels of raising rabbits. Dr. Luke Farr, the Department of animal, and wildlife sciences at Texas A&M Kingsville in 1994, where he managed a rabbit research station and taught students in over 150 courses across the vast field of livestock production. He is considered a trailblazer in the field of rabbit production science in the developing world and has worked in rural and village level communities in more than 30 countries, teaching the necessary skills to raise rabbits as a food source and means of economic improvement. He's authored more than 200 publications, including Developing Sustainable Rabbit Projects by Heifer International. From 2004 to 2008, Dr. Far served as president of the World Rabbit Science Association, and from 2008 to 2016, served the same organization as the general secretary for rabbits in the developing world. In 1997, Dr. Far was the recipient of the coveted International Animal Agricultural Bufault Award from the American Society of Animal Science. And most recently, he was awarded the Piper Professor Teacher Award of the Year for 2021. Dr. Luke Farr, welcome to the Best in
2: Show podcast. Um, thank you, Alan. I appreciate that kind introduction. I would have kept it short and just say this guy likes rabbits.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you are uh, a very modest guy. I've had the pleasure <laughs> of knowing you for about 10 years, and I grew up. Uh, with the rabbit production book as my go-to source Mm. as as, as a kid obsessed with rabbits and still keep that copy so i i I treasure our our friendship and getting to know you over the years um and you are again one of the most modest guys i know for all that you've Mm. done let's talk about your early life because it's pretty fascinating Mm. uh you had a divergence into science and academia but uh, you started off i believe pretty similarly to a lot of us rabbit show people so Tell us, uh, how did you get involved in rabbits, and how old were you?
2: Well, I was just a kid. Uh, I think I was 11 or 12, and I was living in Southern California because my father was a pilot in the Navy. In fact, uh, he he was involved in many missions uh, during the Vietnam War. But it so happened that Southern California is where the commercial rabbit meat industry began in the entire world. With developing breeds like the New Zealand and the Californian, uh, developing uh, metal cages, uh, pelleted feeds, uh, markets to ship your fryers to. I remember as a kid, I would put uh, hutches of, of uh, rabbits in the back of a truck. My, my parents would, would drive me to the uh, largest commercial rabbit tree in the area um, after the rabbits were weighed and, and sold. Then I would get gunny sacks full of rabbit pellets and take them back home. But little did I realize at the time that was the epicenter of the, of the rabbit industry. But I was just uh, fascinated and intrigued by rabbits. I was just amazed at, at their high rate of, of reproduction. Um, when my father came back from one of his tours, um, uh, my mother said, Stephen would really like to raise rabbits. And before I knew it, uh, he was helping me build hutches. And, uh, and then before I knew it, because rabbits breed like rabbits, um, mom was cooking us a delicious rabbit meat meals. And so, um, it became a, a family tradition. <laughs> and back then, were you traveling to, uh,
1: county fairs and, and shows and maybe doing FFA or 4-H?
2: Once I got into high school, um, I, I did join, um, our high school FFA chapter, so I was I was quite involved with that, but but uh, I never never really showed rabbits until uh, years later when I was at, at attending uh, Texas A and University in South Texas, and uh, so I became an ARBA member, uh, started receiving domestic rabbits, and, and that was a wonderful experience. Uh, I had a lot of pleasure in in showing rabbits, but. My forte was meat rabbit production and crossbreeding. And and uh, as I became a university student, uh, learning in animal science about genetics and breeding and pedigrees. And and that was really my, my interest is in producing rabbits that could produce a lot of meat and little space and little time. <laughs>
1: and uh, do you still raise rabbits today? And have you ever thought yes, about I showing do. rabbits again?
2: Yes, I do. Well, not, not so much showing rabbits. I'm a I'm a backyard guy. I I, I subscribe to small scale uh, backyard uh, production as a as a family activity. Um, for many years, I, I have a garden and I practice integration. I use uh, rabbit manure and make compost for the garden. Uh, when it's harvest time, um, a lot of the uh, quote unquote waste uh, go back to feed the rabbits, and at the same time, I'm keeping the freezer full of rabbit meat and encouraging my, my neighbors uh, uh, and beyond uh, to all the benefits of raising rabbits.
1: Gosh, I sure wish people out here in California were doing the same thing. It's kind of mm-hmm. remarkable how the California environment is totally, the society has changed and Southern California yes. is in our state, one of the least populated with rabbit, produ- ra- rabbit breeders anymore. Well, I don't think there's anyone down there even raising rabbits in a meat production
2: scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's uh, sorry to hear, but you know, I could get on my bicycle and uh, I could go different directions, and I in less than an hour, I could be at a large scale commercial rabbit tree where I was living in, in Southern California.
1: That's amazing. We're gonna talk about yeah. uh, Southern California later on we talk about the development of the of this book that we're gonna uh, feature today. Um, sure. but let's talk a little bit more about you when you uh, decided that you wanted to study rabbit mm-hmm. production. Uh, Mm -hmm. what inspired you to pursue a PhD? And if you want to talk about your research as a PhD student, please.
2: Well, thank you. Well, when I took my first genetics course, I think I was a sophomore at at the university, um, fireworks (laughs) uh, uh, took off. Uh, I could understand how different colors of rabbits were produced because I did a lot of crossbreeding. And in fact, one time I made it a a black doe to a red satin buck, and I believe it was a litter of nine or ten, every one of them was an agouti, oh my. <laughs> agouti colored, and so, um, and then again, noticing that uh, if you line breed or inbreed performance decrease, if I crossbreed, uh, the opposite would happen, um, I love keeping pedigrees, and, uh, but when I took that first genetic course, uh, again, there were fireworks, and I said, that's it, and my advisor also had a PhD degree, in genetics, and he taught that course, and and uh, he encouraged me to uh, pursue a graduate degree in in a uh, animal breeding and genetics. But then, uh, my last semester, this was in uh, fall of 1978. Another animal science professor uh, handed me a brochure, and what was it? It was about the new OSU, Rabbit Research Center, that's the O is in Oregon uh, State University, had photographs of doctors Peter Cheek and Nephi Patton, and uh, long story short, a uh, month or two later, I, I was accepted, and I took my best rabbits with me in, in the back of my pickup truck, and I drove to Corvallis, Oregon, and, and joined their team and pursued my graduate degrees in genetics. So tell us about that
1: rabbit research station at Oregon state university. What was yes. going on in the 1970s and eighties and into the nineties yep. to sustain yep. rabbits as a university study in the United States? Because I'm, um, I, I mean, I'm envious. I wish I was, I wish I was a student back then because I would have done the same thing, but now we don't you won't. see that anymore. So what was going on back then?
2: Well, um, you know, uh, the rabbit industry was still quite active and I'm talking the meat rabbit industry. And there were markets all around the country. It, although on the Western and on the Eastern shores is where the markets and the demand was greatest. Um, it was believed because of the, of the European, uh, traditions of, of, of the populations on, on the coast. And, uh, and at the same time, um, more and more feed companies were making rabbit feed and then there was bass rabbit equipment and and then we were aware of uh, George Templeton's book of of rabbit production Uh, while I was there uh, uh, Cheek and Patton were invited to update that book and so just to give an idea many things were going on it was an exciting time at at the same token it was around 1980 a, a classic article now uh, by Dr. John Owen, was entitled, Rabbit Meat for the Developing Countries. (laughs) So we all put two and two together, you know, not just domestic rabbit meat production, but global rabbit meat production. It was a very exciting time. And, and, uh, and again, um, what one um, output was the Journal of Applied Rabbit Research. Uh, Dr. Cheek was the chief editor and and uh, and we were doing lots of research projects and turning right around and publishing our results at the same time, accepting donations and memberships to, uh, to, to maintain a very modest research budget. So it was a very exciting time.
1: And that research station is no longer uh, around, correct,
2: at Oregon State? It was uh, closed down after uh, Doctors Cheek and Patton retired, but... but the state budget of Oregon got hit hard at about the same time, and so there were major uh, cutbacks of, of many programs. But, but again, because they retired, um, uh, that was basically the the reason for uh, closing the rabbit research center.
1: It's unfortunate that it's no longer there for students to to study in the way that you were so you know fortunate yes. to, but the right. as a rabbit breeder and judge myself who who travels to oregon ha- and has from it since 1998 uh mm-hmm. it, it, your influence and in the and the the, the the pioneers that you were with have had mm-hmm. a long-lasting impact on oregon oregon has been one of the most uh mm-hmm. you know it's not a it's not a, b- a big state in population but the rabbit breeders and the power that comes out of that state to this day is is i'm sure a consequence of some of the early work i remember uh mm-hmm. it's not so much anymore because some of the people are older and retired but they used to they used to reminisce the breeders about the World Rabbit Congress that uh, took place in the '90s um, up there at Oregon State and how breeders yes. attended and they were just so thirsty That's for knowledge right. and, they, and it was open yeah. to them and and it really had a long-standing impact.
2: Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I, since you mentioned our, the annual uh, rabbit conferences that were held there, um, of course. I was expected, as were other graduate students who were doing rabbit research at the time, you will give a presentation. Um, and I had stage fright. And and so next thing I find out, um, I'm, I'm going to be standing on stage in, in front of over 500 people. So it was a classic uh, deer in the headlights uh, scenario.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a sink or swim kind of moment, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know how much you keep up on on rabbit shows and the best in shows, but just kind of mm-hmm. thinking here for a second about the number mm-hmm. of best in show rabbits at our pinnacle show. That's the ARBA convention that have come out of Oregon. It's pretty remarkable, um, even mm-hmm. even to this day, um, from Satins to Hall Lops to, sure. um, well, many uh, and, and a lot of Oregon yep. people will be down at the convention next week in Reno and with some of the best entries, I'm sure
2: you know at at oregon we we received wonderful support by uh, members of the arba uh, and even in my own research i, I got to know uh, quite a few breeders uh, uh personally many became uh friends for years and in my uh, breed evaluation and crossbreeding research uh i was i should say the rabbit research center was donated uh breeding bucks, uh, Californians and Flemish Giants, especially um, in developing so-called terminal crosses where you cross either a Flemish Giant or a Californian buck to a commercial bred, New Zealand white, and all those fryers go to market uh, to have the most efficient and profitable uh, crossbreeding system possible. That was the uh, topic of my PhD dissertation. But, But my point is we had wonderful support but by many members of the ARBA uh, in the uh, Pacific Northwest at this time.
1: Um, You are a regents professor of animal science at Texas A&M Kingsville and have been a full professor since the mid nineties. Tell us about your work uh, with rabbits in Kingsville and what were some of the focuses and discoveries you made uh, while you were there and, or are there with your students?
2: Okay. Um, I'll just back up just a smidge. I know, um, You wanted to talk uh, later about uh, developing uh, rabbit projects. But when I finished at Oregon State in 1982, my first job was with Heifer Project International. They hired me for two years to teach poor people in Cameroon, West Africa, about the benefits of raising rabbits as a source of nutritious meat for their family and and also to increase their income. when i was finished with that contract in 1985 actually i went next to alabama a m university and i was there between 1985 and 1994 and i was the director of the the rabbit research program there uh continued doing um a lot of rabbit uh, genetic uh, and other uh, types of research there and then the opportunity uh, came up to return uh, back home to where my parents had retired to south texas where Texas A&M University Kingsville exists. And so I was hired in 1994, as you said, and and uh, have been doing rabbit research there. Um, I will back up. If anyone has heard of the Altex breed, we started that research project at Alabama. That's where the AL comes from. Uh, we crossed Flemish Giant Californian and Champagne D'Argent to produce a new uh, terminal sire breed for the commercial meat rabbit industry. And then Uh, when I left Alabama A&M, I took um, uh, the best rabbits with me uh, to Kingsville and continued developing that breed. And then we added the letters T-E-X and called it All Altex. And so that was one of our major projects.
1: And your focus there at Kingsville was to teach people about raising rabbits in in a production scale, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. So uh, that's uh, involved not just uh, even freshman students, uh, taking them out to the agriculture farm and giving them hands-on experiences in rabbit management. But also uh, one of my favorite courses that I taught was international animal agriculture. Of course, there was an entire module on, on rabbit production and and the sharing of my uh, overseas experiences with rabbit projects. Um, and over the years, uh, training many of my own graduate students uh, from quite a number of different countries um, to specialize in rabbit production and return back to their home countries and, and expand uh, global rabbit production.
1: How many rabbits did you have there in, at Kingsville that you were working with at your station?
2: Uh, about 100 breeding rabbits.
1: Wow. And I know, or I've heard that Kingsville is one of the only tropical climates in the U.S. What's it like down there? I heard it's really hot and humid. Is that
2: true? Well, we have have summer and we have fall. And and summer's (laughs) about three times as long as the fall season. So that's about it <laughs> but we did have a nice cold front come in a couple of days ago but but now it's back up to the 80s
1: <laughs> oh my gosh and so that yeah. must create some challenges for raising rabbits who don't typically do well yeah.
2: in the heat well um s- some of the listeners might be aware of the studies that we did a few years ago at Kingsville with the genetically furless or naked rabbits in fact in the new edition rabbit production there's a photo and and, uh, and a description of that project in one of the genetics chapters. And so um, briefly, uh, we I heard about a, it was a, a mini lop Rex that was furless, not too far from me, about a 200 mile drive. The owners were very kind and let us borrow that buck who they named Fuzz. And for one month, um, he was a busy buck. Uh, he produced a over 200 offspring a month later. But uh, we produced F1s by mating him to New zealand White commercial does. And our hypothesis was a single gene that is recessive. And sure enough, in the first-generation crosser F1, all of his offspring had fur. But uh, uh, any geneticist knows, or should know, that if you take the F1 and mate it to itself, uh, you'll get all the possible gene recombinations possible. So that's what we did. We, we took uh, half brothers and half sisters and mated those and produced the F2 generation. And sure enough, we had basically a, a perfect match of a, of a three to one ratio of furred to furless rabbits. And then in the next generation, just to confirm it, uh, we made it furless to furless and all of their offspring in the F3 generation were furless. But we did a, a series of, of projects uh, taking littermates mates uh, in those early generations where some were furred and some were furless. And me- measure feed intake and uh, growth rate and even physiological measurements of respiration rate, number of breaths per minute and a body temperature. And we did these studies um, I believe for two or three years, but in the summer season when we are very tropical down here. And a long story short, um, the furless rabbits significantly outperformed their fur littermate counterparts. And we published a number of papers and uh, it got a a bit of attention. But uh, I presented one of those uh, studies uh, um, at a World Rabbit Congress Uh, I think that was in, I want to say 2004, and uh, one of the questions that came up after the presentation was a rabbit scientist from Nigeria, and he said, "Uh, Doc, it all sounds good. I believe what you're saying is true, but I think the problem would be my farmers would feel the rabbits are just too ugly to raise." (laughs) But uh, then, of course, uh, one joke I always had was we genetically engineered ugly rabbits so uh, <laughs> we can deep debunk the Easter Bunny syndrome or the so-called cute and cuddly syndrome. Well, so I mean, we maybe maybe, that, maybe, that's why, uh,
1: maybe that's why maybe that's why furless rabbits haven't taken off in the show <laughs> in the show side of things. But very few of us are familiar with with those well, furless what about, rabbits. What about the furless guinea pigs?
2: Have well, I was going to say. Showed.
1: They they have progressed a lot uh, quicker than furless rabbits. Yeah. So those, those hairless, or we yeah. call them skinny or naked KVs, uh, there's, there's quite, a, quite a following within the ARBA, but they are still mm-hmm. uh, not recognized. But um, okay. but the, they, we do see them quite often. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you, we call those rabbits furless, but you mentioned mm-hmm. it was a Rex mini lop. So, and I've seen the photos. Maybe you want to describe to our listeners what a furless rabbit actually
2: looks like and how furless is it? Uh There's variation. Uh, There's usually a little bit of fur on the extremities, including on the foot pads, which of course are critical if you're going to raise them in in wire cages. Um, But there's variation. Uh, Some have a little bit more fur and some have even more. Uh, One of my graduate students even came up with three terms. uh, Wuzzies, fuzzies, and buzzies. (laughs) (laughs) The wuzzies looked woolly Uh, Fuzzies were intermediate. Uh, Buzzies look like they were, for all practical purposes, almost completely naked, (laughs) except for the extremities. So a lot of variation. And probably that is due to modifier genes, you know, just uh, a multitude of of genes that kind of tweak the major furless gene to make them have slightly more or slightly less fur. And
1: have any of those furless rabbits uh, made their way across the world uh, to be bred? For example, that uh, researcher from Nigeria—any any word on how they're doing elsewhere, or did they take off anywhere?
2: Oh, what we did—we um, we had a a company in Missouri, a laboratory company, <clears throat> come down and and they bought all of the rabbits from us. And the reason was we weren't throwing in the towel. Uh, don't get me wrong, but, but we had a list of other uh, rabbit research projects that we wanted to do, and to do a good scientific study, you need lots of rabbits and lots of cages, so anyway, we we felt at that time that, that we'd done plenty of research with these furless rabbits, and it was time to move on and, and uh, get excited about some new projects, but, but, uh, I have been aware uh, mostly through the internet and communications with other rabbit breeders is that furless rabbits are not so uh, uncommon anymore. And, and, and they do appear uh, in other countries. And so time will tell, you know, if they'll make a splash or not in the meat world.
1: And you mentioned some of the other research that you did there at Kingsville. I know um, you did some work with feeding yeah, uh, fresh foods, correct? Instead yes. of a pelleted diet, you want to tell forages. our listeners about a little bit about that. Yeah,
2: there was uh, well, t- two forages had had tremendous potential. Uh, one is called Lab Lab, which is simply called tropical alfalfa, and it's a fast-growing plant. It's a vine with large leaves. It's very high in protein, highly palatable, no known toxins, and it's. And rabbits just loved eating it and they performed really well. And we developed a system of, of growing the lab lab in, in a forage plots, and in hand harvesting it, drying it, making hay, uh, feeding it to the rabbits. Of course, we had to take lots of measurements of feed intake or appetite, uh, growth rate, feed efficiency and so on. And we also made using coffee cans, um, molasses blocks. Uh, if any of you out there raise cattle. Or, or other uh, grazing livestock, uh, molasses tubs or a common feed supplement, but you add a little bit of cement or a hardener s- to limit the intake so the animals won't bloat or founder. You can also add salt and minerals. And, uh, and so we had a, a neat little feeding system of lab lab hay with these little molasses uh, uh, tubs. And uh, another study, we, uh, we even fed uh sugar cane stalks that were cut into small slices as an energy supplement. Again, doing the studies in the summertime, which potentially, if we had positive results, they could be adopted by small farmers in other tropical countries around the world. And then lastly, uh, we showed a very promising study with, with the leaves and vines from the sweet potato plant. Um, the researchers, uh, in Vietnam uh, who raise rabbits have developed a neat little system where farmers that they grow sweet potatoes, um, if every three weeks they go back to the same row of the sweet potato plant and cut no more than the last third uh, tip of the vines and dry and feed those to rabbits, it, it won't stunt uh, the growth of the tuber, which of course you eat or can sell to increase income. But just like a, the lab lab the sweet potato leaves are are high in protein about thirty percent crude protein and again no known toxins highly palatable and uh, so we did uh, some studies with with uh, with that as a forage and again to could greatly reduce um, feed costs in, in fact just a, a brief plug about the new edition of rabbit production we um, I've written a lot more about these potential feeding systems, even here at home, with the present um, and waning uh, COVID pandemic, and with the interest in organic uh, food production, uh, the interest in eating healthy and knowing where your food comes from—you know these are sustainable systems so that that uh, families don't have to d- depend on on the high cost of of commercial feed. Yeah, and we know
1: as rabbit breeders how expensive rabbit feed is getting. It's, it's incredible yes. to hear that some breeders are spending up to thirty dollars for a fifty pound oh. sack of, oh of pellets. Gosh. I know, really? and and mm. to think that those uh, the forages that you that you've studied and others have studied mm. are actually offering a protein level of thirty our, percent. Our rabbit pellets are typically what fifteen yeah, to eighteen percent. That's right. Sure, yeah, that's amazing. It's it's very inventive, um, and I imagine that you were looking at those forage diets and researching those because in other parts of the world, in the developing world, pelleted diet is is not you can't even huh. find it. So you have to be inventive if you're going to raise rabbits, right?
2: Well, most countries of the world do not make rabbit pellets. You're exactly right.
1: Yeah, or by the time the pellets get there, they're they're moldy and 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 no longer well, palatable, right?
2: Well, the cost of importation would be higher than the cost of the feed, and and if you are trying to target poor farmers, again, <laughs> it's not feasible.
1: Yeah, I, I did. Some, I I did a project in Haiti about ten years oh, yeah. ago with um, partners of the Americas, the USAID project. Yeah, right. And, uh, right. That's I really heard about you there because the hmm. a lot of your work has in there and they still hmm. of course read your publications and then everything they fed there was on a forage base uh from from table scraps to as you yes. said tops of uh, sweet
2: potatoes absolutely
1: yep mm-hmm. and the rabbits were were thriving and, and prolific and feeding people and creating little income or you know micro economies for people. it was just it blew yes, my mind uh, i i yes, felt um, uh I was a rabbit show person. I'm trying to explain to them what I do. I'm thinking, I no, don't even well, don't even go there, Alan, because it's it's you, they can't. It's not even fathomable to them.
2: I'm sure you left quite an impact there too. But but uh, have you heard the the latest news from Haiti? It's not very encouraging.
1: I haven't heard the latest. I know it's it's been it's been terrible there over the last uh, six or seven months.
2: What have you heard lately? Yes, uh, major food shortages, uh, even starvation and uh, impacting especially people who live in large cities who are removed from farms and, and the capability uh, of producing their own food and crime rates and uh, uh, gangs uh, raiding large uh, storage areas of surplus food and so forth. It's, it's, it doesn't sound encouraging.
1: No, it's very scary. I recently heard about the gangs in Port-au-Prince, and when I first yeah. arrived in Haiti— uh, I visited rabbit breeders sort of living in the city and raising rabbits in around oh. Port-au-Prince. And one of yes. the struggles that they were, that they, that they have is theft, that they have yes. thieves that come on the property and steal the rabbits. And that's right. um, they're, they're quite okay. valuable.
2: Yes. It's not not a laughing matter. Uh, that That's no. for sure. But you're right. You, you can raise rabbits in, a you know, s- suburbs of cities. Um, uh, and that's one advantage of rabbits. Uh, a lot of neighbors don't even know you got them. <laughs> exactly, and a lot of us show people know that too that, that that's a great trick.
1: Um, <laughs> so that's gonna kind of segue into the next uh, portion, which is your work in the developing world. And tell our mm-hmm. listeners why rabbits make so much sense in the developing world you've you've touched on it quite a bit, but you know, give us a plug for why rabbits work in in Haiti or well, West africa
2: well, um I, again, I had a, a a wonderful opportunity. It just fell into my lap um and that's. One thing that I've taught my students for many years when opportunities come knocking, you, you jump at them and, and, and don't wait or, or linger. But uh, again, I was hired by Heifer International. Uh, they sent me to Cameroon and uh, I had my feet on the ground there for two years and gained a lot of experience. And, and uh, it was a, a, evident to me uh, directly that yes, it is possible. It's not just something you can hear or read about uh, in, in a book or article. Um, I, I saw it happen. Um, farmers were raising rabbits from plots of forages of uh, going into the quote unquote bush and harvesting edible nutritious plants and weeds and, and shrubs and also um, table scraps and uh, preparing their meals like like peelings and tops and so on and uh and so the food cost was basically zero and also so was the family labor because it it was a a family project no outside labor had to be hired and with basic training because that's key uh, make sure you have highly motivated farmers that that uh are willing to to work hard and make the project a success uh to be taught about proper rabbit management which of course includes many things, including disease prevention and also early intervention and in treating diseases. A uh, quick example ear mites uh, take clean palm oil, put a few drops in the ear, and in most cases, the, the problem solved. And so, hutches made from raffia palm wood. Um, I found a local carpenter who made furniture. I gave him a design. Next thing I know, he's in the, in the, Uh, truck with me going to villages, and he demonstrated to them how to build rabbit hutches. They'd bring the sticks uh, early that morning, the raffia sticks from their own farms, which grew everywhere, and uh, from start to finish, uh, they had built rabbit hutches, and so what was amazing was uh, rabbit production was a very low-cost enterprise, but the benefits were humongous because there was so much meat now to feed their families, and even surplus to sell in the marketplace to increase their income. And we focused on the women, we focused on the children, also at Catholic missions and orphanages and working with Peace Corps. And so I had the wonderful opportunity for two years to get all that experience under my belt. And when, when I was done, um, Heifer International asked me to write a book, which is, uh, which is the one that you mentioned earlier in the introduction. Uh, developing successful rabbit projects. I was at uh, a children's orphanage
1: in Senegal in West Africa when I Mm. did a study abroad there. It was SOS International, I believe. And on that orphanage, they had a a small group of rabbits that they were raising to to feed the children. It was just remarkable.
2: Absolutely. You bet.
1: Um, What were some of those villages like? I imagine you've traveled to some pretty remote areas. Mm. I mean, are we talking... Is there water? Is there plumbing? Electricity? You know, what are these villages like? And in-
2: well, it, it's it's hard to be general. Except of course, uh, if you get off the major uh, roads from the capital cities and go into the villages, uh, then of course uh, it's not uncommon at all that there's no running water into the house or electricity, and the roads are mostly dirt roads and. And so you find extreme poverty, many cases in those situations.
1: And I know in, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Well, I'll just add one thing that was refreshing, though, uh, in contrast to some of the social uh, issues here at home, is uh, if you teach people how to raise rabbits and how to enjoy eating rabbit meat, you you don't have to worry too much about uh, issues like animal rights. So not to raise any, any disturbing uh, red flags here, but it was refreshing in that sense that, that the rabbits are really, really benefiting the people with very few constraints or, or pressures. Yeah,
1: people are just happy to have a delicious meal and something that's so oh. nutritious as, as, as rabbit meat.
2: Yes, and, and, and so grateful. That was my, my biggest reward uh, when I had my first project in Cameroon was, was how grateful the people were. That, that that and it, because they were benefiting so much. Um, I you speak on uh,
1: rabbits in the developing world at rabbitcon uh, a number of years ago, and yes. I remember you talking about uh, using the manure in some inventive ways. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, I, I think I know what the, what you're thinking. There's a variety of, of uh, uses. Uh, one is is uh, integrating rabbit production with aquaculture. I've been involved with projects where uh, rabbits are inside of of a wooden framed stalls, and the uh, hutches are hung from the rafters, but it's a very simple design, usually a palm or a grass roof, directly over fish ponds and and uh, what the rabbit manure and urine does is it fertilizes the pond and you can grow especially species like tilapia which is a fast growing species, usually from the fingerling to the harvest stage um, under ideal conditions, uh, six months and you're harvesting uh, uh, tilapia. But uh, some trials that I've been involved with involving this type of integration was that uh, there were control ponds without rabbit integration. What I was told sometime later at the conclusion of the projects is that the tilapia fish grew twice as fast in those ponds where rabbits were raised, um, over the ponds. So that was, that was quite cool.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's really cool. And I think that it's, you're doing two species at once and, uh, offering even, yes. even, even greater supply in, in the, in the food chain. Um, um you must be very, you must be very proud of your improvements, uh, th- that you've brought to people around the wow. world and in, in some of the most impoverished countries. Do you keep up with some of the people and places you've worked sure. with over the years?
2: Um, Yes, um, things have kind of slowed down a a bit, uh, of course, since I've retired. But uh, um, just last week, I I autographed and wrote a special note to a a new friend that I have um, who has a copy of Robert Production, um, who's a veterinarian in the Philippines. So, you know, that made my week last week.
1: Yeah, that's that's very cool. I know uh we had a, a guest from the Philippines at Rabicon last year that uh, yes. took part in your course and she she has been she's read everything every, I think she's read everything you've ever written and she was uh, really excited to to be able to speak to you at Rabicon. Um is,
2: is, is she American or is she Filipino?
1: She's Filipino, yes, and she's pursuing a veterinary license there as well.
2: Oh, okay. That that's good to hear. <clears throat> well, thank you for that.
1: Yeah, her name is uh, Rich Bryans, and I, I know she listens to the podcast oh, okay. as well. So,
2: yeah, there's um, a very strong effort now of rabbit production in the Philippines and, and, uh, th- their program is now a new branch of the Rural Rabbit Science Association.
1: Wow. That's very cool. What are some of the, the models that are used by uh, Heifer International? I know I work with Farmer to Farmer, but, um, where you, you give basically a farmer, a certain number of rabbits, and then they have to give mm-hmm. back. Correct. You want to explain what that that's about and how it, how it sort of you know it it continues to grow sure
2: yeah that's the model that that I first used in Cameroon Uh, of course being an employee of Heifer uh, Project International which is what they were called back then we just said HPI but uh, what you you teach a farmer how to raise rabbits Uh, so they get trained first they make all the preparations building the hutches uh, developing the forage plots and so forth and then if you provide them let's say with two does and a buck then later on, from their first litters, they give back uh, three rabbits, which which either the program can pass on to farmers in another village in a new project, or uh, sometimes the farmer can directly pass them on to a neighbor after he has or she has trained that neighbor, of course, first how to raise rabbits. And so it's also called the, the living chain of, of, of livestock you know, that's where the word passing on a gift comes from. It's in the form of living animals that can benefit people who live in poverty.
1: And when they breed like rabbits, that gift they keeps on giving is probably more prolific than, than, than larger livestock, absolutely. right?
2: Uh, absolutely. Yes. Um, in contrast, you know, take a cow, uh, you know, one offspring in a whole year, and no guarantee she's going to get pregnant or that that one calf will survive. And if that cow dies, God forbid, you know, family could starve.
1: Right. Or, or the fact that a cow is going to have one calf. And if, if it's yeah. uh if it's a heifer, they may want to retain her as a, you know, for the next That's generation right. and, and, and not, yes. and not eat her. So yeah, it's much slower. Rabbits make yes. so much sense. Um,
2: yes, uh, absolutely.
1: So one of the most exciting additions to the better understanding of rabbit science is the 2022 publication of the 10th edition of, mm the rabbit production book, which uh, we're so mm. excited to speak to you about today. Before we talk yeah. about the current issue, can you give us a little history mm. on the rabbit production book, which is, it's in its 10th edition now. It's been around for a while, yes. right?
2: I, I believe the, the first edition written by Dr. George Templeman, who was the former director of the, the rabbit research center. And it was a USDA rabbit research center at, in Fontana, uh, California. I think that was in the late fifties, early sixties. And then, uh, he wrote, uh, two or three editions after that. And then I believe it was the fifth edition, uh, 1982 where the authors, uh, Cheek, Patton, and Templeton, they were co-authors in the fifth edition of, of the book, if I'm not mistaken. And so, as I said earlier, um, they did research, wonderful research at the Fontana uh, USDA Rabbit Research Center. But uh, when he uh, retired, uh, the USDA decided, unfortunately, to close the program. And then, of course, um, there was a he he passed on, and and then again there was a, a, a high demand to to continue uh, with that book. And so uh, I was there when when a word broke that uh, interstate publishers from Danville, Illinois, contacted Dr. Cheek and Patton with a proposition to write the an updated uh, uh, edition of, of, of Rabbit Production. And, of course, they were all on, on cloud nine. Uh, uh, it was a, a wonderful um, um, honor to rewrite and update the book.
1: So back then when Dr. Templeton from the research station there in Fontana, when he... Uh, you know, created the first several editions of the book, what, what was the, the, yes. the aim or the goal of creating a book like
2: that? Um, well, education, of course, uh, as a new industry, many people have a hundred questions. And so uh, sometimes uh, we like to just say, well, just just read the book, uh, not, to, not to blow off you know, the, the enthusiasm of the breeder, of course, but it's it sure as handy when you can just slip a couple of pages and within minutes you've got an answer. That, that was the whole point of it, really. But at the same time, um, uh, from research, uh, being able to update the material and pres- provide a narrative and tables and figures of, of uh, all the new trends and, and exciting new knowledge that can be applied to, to benefit the rabbit production
1: when you uh got on the team with Dr. Cheek, Dr. McNitt, and Dr. Pat I mean it seems like a dream team to me looking at this at this collaboration um what was it like to collaborate with those uh those pioneers and what were some of the the advents that you wanted to add to the rabbit production book that that evolved it from the versions that Dr. Templeton had?
2: I might mention that and let me grab a copy real quick <clears throat> Okay, I've got the first edition in my hands, and I'm flipping to the back, and it's it's it's, it's less than 200 pages, um, and it included some material like recipes, which of course we don't include anymore because you can get those online. But it was a it was a modest book at the time, and of course didn't have the benefit of the wealth of knowledge from international uh, rabbit research uh, uh, experiments, and so. Um, we were able to, to greatly expand the book. And uh, and what was interesting, the Dr. Cheek took the... I don't think there was... Maybe there was one chapter on nutrition in Templeton's book, but Cheek then wrote three or four. I think you know, you know one of them is just the practical nutrition chapter. What are the nutrient requirements? What do nutrients do in a body? And then another chapter is related to basic or applied feeds and feeding. Then I think there's a chapter on toxins and feeds and so on. So... Cheek took that uh, topic and ran with it. And Dr. Patton did the same thing with the health or diseases chapter. And that's one chapter. And it's probably the longest chapter and maybe even the most important chapter in the book. So that was quite an undertaking of of Dr. Patton. Uh, Dr. McNitt's specialty was reproduction and management. So he wrote a new chapter on reproduction. He expanded the management chapter. And then, of course, they all looked at me. Uh, you need to write the genetics chapter. And so it was a team <laughs> effort. And uh, once we had drafts, we we'd had meeting after meeting, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you one little joke about that. But of course, we we would have read each other's um, manuscripts uh, on a chapters ahead of time, come together with our marks, try not to offend any anybody, but, uh, uh Jim McNitt was a real character and we miss him a lot. In fact, uh we dedicate this new edition to his memory. But uh, we had a joke we'd call him McNitt Picker because any <laughs> little thing it might be a it might be a, a comma in a wrong place or a cap or or maybe a, a word that should be struck out that really is uh, really minor, but but we just had a had a lot of fun. <laughs> Gosh, I can't I can't even imagine um, what are some of
1: the topics covered in uh, production today that are beneficial to the, the many facets of this industry from show to to production to world well, de- uh, or ag development?
2: Well, um, a, a, a major update was made. And it's got a new look, starting with the cover and instead of a, a white rabbit, uh, we kind of jazz it up with a tricolored rabbit, which was actually from my own backyard. Um, and I, I don't to... even know if there's a breed that has that color pattern uh, is there Alan?
1: well i'm I'm looking at the cover now, and it's it's a beautiful t- beautifully typed dutch it has a um a saddle and and a blaze and cheek markings but it's in um it looks like a a blue japanese harlequin color which is which is not recognized some breeders actually actually tried to develop the variety but uh to this day it's it's not recognized and i have to say that one of the the people that was behind that variety trying to get him recognized is actually from Oregon was uh, Jill. Oh, so, <laughs> um, and, and, and I have to give another nod to the type, the, the, the body and the profile of that, of the Dutch and the, the new cover is, is pretty cool. Pretty great. It would be competitive and, and today.
2: I, well, and one reason I added that was not just to, uh, 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 to appeal uh, to the, uh, to the, the person, but you go to a developing country and you see every color, shape and size of rabbits imaginable because uh, when I mentioned that we did a major update uh, of the book, um, it's, it's a, a, a international um, focus now. Um, in fact, my wife told me once, why don't you just call it now World Rabbit Production? I said, well, maybe folks won't think it's the same book anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's been really expanded. And, and when I say we, um, there were uh, experts like yourself. Uh, you played a major role in updating the rabbit shows chapter. And uh, Leslie Sampson has has handled for several editions now, the, the Angora rabbit chapter, she updated that. Um, I also collaborated in the area of health and diseases with Dr. Chris Hayhow. He kindly went through and updated all of the medications uh, for all of the disease treatments and, and preventative um, measures uh, in the health chapter. And then I collaborated with Dr. Stefani Bertagnoli. Uh, She actually is a rabbit research scientist working in France, and she took two major present diseases, epizootic rabbit enteropathy and rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which of course the latter goes by many different names. And she fully updated what we know about those diseases to date and how we can prevent those diseases and what And so um, that just gives some idea. But uh, new topics, too, um, organic rabbit production, pastured uh, rabbit production, um, small-scale integration, as I gave examples of earlier. Um, the, the focus, again, on sustainability and knowing where your food comes from and raising rabbits in your own backyard integrated with gardening Um in the name of food security, uh, with the the background of this COVID uh, pandemic, um, it, again, it just has a different look and it has a, a different message.
1: I love it, and there's there we're going to see so much more about sustainability. Not only mm. in, in food, but uh, I'm studying sustainable fashion of all things because I raise Angora goats and mohair, and I, I wish more people wore mohair and natural fibers. But that lends itself sure. into something that can be not only uh, biodegradable, but has a longer life, and and then you know where your yeah. where your clothes come from. It's not shipped across the world, or or your food, it's not shipped across the world and handled by who knows who, Absolutely. and and injected with this and that. So, um, yeah. the the latest edition mm-hmm. is is definitely very up to date and contemporary. And you mentioned the the disease chapter updated by the scientist in yes. France, uh, yes. and I have to say that in rabbits right now, as a as a show, as a judge, and as a, as a breeder, we are all mm-hmm. uh, facing both of those enteritis, or we sometimes call Loat bloat, dead. and wow. and of course RHD seems to be uh, a, a mm-hmm. struggle that even it's took it took almost twenty years for it to really become endemic here in the U.S. But it we is we're it, we're dealing with it now. So those updated chapters yes, on right. Blood or enteritis, right. and RHD, those are invaluable to any of us well, as breeders.
2: You bet. And we added a, a lot of new photos. And again, most of the photos and images are in color now uh, in this edition. And there were a couple of things that I especially wanted to, to see done. Um, unfortunately, in the last edition, um, a soft cover came out and then to our surprise, a hardcover version came out and the latter uh, apparently took an earlier version of the book that had some errors in it that hadn't been corrected. And so I, I took care of all of that and uh, making a, a number of corrections. Um, and also, uh, since Cabby is the publisher and they're based in the UK, in England, uh, the last edition only had uh, measurements in the metric system, which I'm sure turned off some folks. So I wanted to make sure that in this edition, we had both metric and U.S. measures. And so I, I consider that to be a, a major improvement uh, in this new edition, which, again, makes it uh, more international.
1: Yes, and it's and it's an easy read. It's not something that oh, you have to be a scientist to, to, to benefit from. These are – this book is, is written yes. in terms of t- – anyone including 4H and FFA kids can can learn and it's it's there's a library in this book you it's bet. it's really amazing and it's you it's bet. served as such for for decades but this latest edition really is beneficial and it's been it's been 20 years since the last edition um
2: i think closer to 10 uh, than 20 10. okay but a lot's yeah, happened in science in rabbit science. A lot science. has happened, yeah, definitely. You know, with the pastured rabbit, organic rabbit, farmers markets, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, um, you know, you, you name it. Um, a lot has happened in the last 10 years. You're exactly right.
1: And, uh, you know, a lot of us turn to Dr. Google these days for information when we have a problem in the rabbitry, but this book is based mm-hmm. off of actual research and science and uh, by, by the experts. Mm-hmm. So this is <laughs> this is well, this is the stuff that, that you actually can use and uh, you know that it has some validity to it um you know decades of, of work by some of the the pioneers around the world uh, and, and con- contemporary pioneers
2: you bet um appreciate that um i'll also mention too that in the rewriting and updating of, of my genetics chapters uh, one very recent uh development is in a field of molecular genetics and so um one change that will be noticed is there's uh, to begin with uh, a, a a map of of the rabbit genome, which shows the chromosomes and a location of what we know now are the locations of many simply inherited genes associated with coat color and and uh, and body size and uh, in, tor- in terms of dwarfism, you know, and many other characters and. When I get, for instance, to the chapter on on coat color genetics, then I'm referring to the gene symbols and their chromosomal locations and how those genes uh, behave um, according to new knowledge on, on rabbit molecular genetics.
1: Well, and, and one of the, the movements in the show rabbit industry here in the U.S. and the ARBA is the development of, of many new colors or what we call varieties so uh yes listeners and, and readers that are are really interested in coat color genetics especially in dwarf breeds you know mini and netherland dwarfs mm. uh which are mm. the most popular breeds these days and holland lops uh they will find that chapter your chapter on coat color genetics and the the new research v- invaluable to them
2: Well thank you um I hope that's the case
1: Well and I I will thank you for inviting me to to update the chapter on show rabbits it was <laughs> I tell you it was a huge honor to be asked um uh, so well, uh and, and, and you and, did a wonderful
2: job, Alan, which I, I really appreciate. Well, thank you. For,
1: for coming from someone that read this book as a kid to be asked to to update and, and be included mm-hmm. is just <laughs> it, it's definitely a highlight I'll, I'll never forget. Um well, that's, and that's this wonderful is, to hear. This latest edition, the Rabbit Production 10th edition, is out and published, and and people now can buy it and, and include it in their rabbit libraries for that go to source for the most up to date information on how to raise rabbits mm. better wherever you are in the world. Uh, KW cages mm. will be selling the latest edition at the 2022 ARBA convention in Reno. They'll have it at their booth in a very limited supply. So those attending the ARBA convention in Reno next week, make sure to stop by the KW booth to grab your copy because they're going to go really fast. And, um, I'm sure they will also be purchasing more and selling them through their KW cages.com website, uh, as they, uh, get more of those issues but aside from kw where else might listeners find and, and purchase this copy
2: well well uh i believe there'll also be flyers on that on that table too
1: yes we'll have some flyers uh, throughout the convention to uh tell people uh, in summary what this latest edition brings to the table and uh, where they can purchase it
2: that's right now um it, in the U.S., I believe that Amazon is now one of the major suppliers of, of the new Rabbit Production book. Um, so, and, and it was requested before I, I uh, wrote the new uh, edition. There's a Kindle version, and the last time I checked, I want to say it's only forty-five dollars. I mean, hmm. how affordable is that?
1: Yeah, that's very affordable. It's, um, it, it's it's. It's way too cheap, to be honest, for the for the knowledge that you get in this book. Everyone, everyone needs to own a copy of it. You bet. <laughs> and that not to backtrack, but I'm just curious, I know you took on you spearheaded sure. this this latest edition. Um, that must have been quite an undertaking. How long or when did you start? the, the 10th edition and how long did it take to, to finish?
2: (laughs) Glad you asked. First I had to retire (laughs) (laughs) because it was, it was probably the largest project that I had on a back burner and, uh, with a full teaching load and uh, other duties. I I just didn't have the time to do it despite cabbie being after me all the time, say, please, (laughs) when can you start on this next edition? So finally they were very elated to hear, uh, when I did retire and, uh, it took me uh, at least six months uh, to 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 do the, the the new edition. And what Cabby provided me with was, of course, the, the previous edition of the book. And they had some uh, editorial requirements, which of course made perfect sense um, as far as making corrections or additions or changes only to that version that they sent me. And uh, and so. They had a September deadline, and so I was I was able to, to meet that, that deadline and send it to them. But then after that, the real work began. Uh, I mean, there were a series of uh, of getting closer and closer to to having a final uh, version that was ready to go to the press for printing. And so uh, once I sent them the draft, then they sent me back a whole bunch of questions, you know, to clear up or clarify certain issues. Um, um, asking questions like, uh, do you have a better photograph to replace this 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 one? that's a little bit fuzzy. Do you see what I'm saying? It really wasn't yet getting to the text of the book. And so finally the next cycle. All right. Now now let's get to the book itself. And so that they made a changes and I had to look. I had to go through every single change that I made to the book and make sure that it was in the new draft that they sent me uh, of the book. And of course, there are a few things had fallen in the cracks, and so I would send that draft back to them. They would send me another updated version. I'd go back through it again, and uh, and so you see what I am saying. It, it took oh, yeah. quite, quite a bit of effort, um, and then um, finally, it was ready to, to go to the press. And then uh, one thing that took quite a bit of time uh, for the cabbie team to do was the index, because just think about it. You know, there's there's hundreds of terms, I believe, in the index. Now they had to go through the whole book and make sure that that single word like snuffles or calling <laughs> is flagged anytime it's mentioned in the book. And so that took them several weeks to do, actually. So there's a lot of detail um, that was involved.
1: Yeah, an incredible amount of detail. I can't even imagine as a graduate student
2: well, uh, that just tries to write papers. I can't even
1: imagine a, a book that's yeah. over 300 pages. Um, well, the, the- Yes go ahead no no go ahead the uh you worked you know very closely with Dr. McNitt Dr. Patton and uh, Dr. Cheek and uh, unfortunately Dr. McNitt mm-hmm. has passed away and this is in his honor this yes. this current edition have you uh yes. ha- did Dr. Cheek and Dr. Patton contribute at all to to this edition or have you reached out to them and have they seen the latest oh, copies
2: well uh, yes so uh, ap- after sending copies of of uh, the book to folks like you that had helped us to to, to update this new book, of course, um, uh, Dr. Cheek and Patton and I received our copies, and uh, uh, I've been able to communicate more easily with Dr. Patton. And uh, sometimes he would even call me out of the blue. and We'd have a wonderful discussion, talk about the good old times. And, mm. and when he finally got his copies of the new edition, uh, he made a, the most wonderful comment. He said, man, if only Jim could see this new edition. Oh, that must have been really <laughs> wasn't that special. Nice? That, that really made my day. And I did talk to Peter t- today. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a good time for us to, to have a chat. He told me to call him back on Saturday. But uh, he told me, I'm anxious to tell you all about it. So I think he was also pleased.
1: That's wonderful. And Dr. Cheek, uh, we know him as the, the father of rabbit nutrition. And he's spoken oh, at RabbitCon for absolutely. us a few times too. And he's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, even even as he's retired, he's as active <laughs> as you're uh, in, this, in this passion and this lifelong journey and commitment to rabbit science. It's just, it's, it's pretty yes. incredible. Your, your team um, there. I,
2: well, thank you. I, I will add in one of his chapters, the first rabbit nutrition 2020 if I recall so that that's quite current
1: yeah that's very current and uh, I know I've got my copy here and I when I got it I was just I couldn't wait to open it up and go through it and I was I was thinking gosh mm-hmm. I just wish this was signed by dr. Luke Farr and uh, mm-hmm. I believe you said uh, in the chat previous to recording that some people uh, purchasers of the book have reached out to you and sent you copies and asked for your signature. Yes. So do you want to tell our listeners how they might uh, get an autograph copy of, of this yes, uh, edition of rabbit production?
2: Yes, it's no problem. Um, uh, first, my, my email address is, is S at at gmail.com. S at gmail at gmail.com. Do you need me to spell that or
1: um, it'll be in the show notes? I'll leave it, but uh, it's S L U K. F A H R at gmail.com for those that would like to contact you
2: and just send me uh, the book. And and if you wouldn't mind uh, slipping in uh, like a returnable package. So, and, uh, and, and if it's posted or I can tell you what the post office uh, uh, charges um, I could be refunded later. Um, But uh, you know, if it's, if it's uh, less than $10, I won't worry about it. But anyway, just mail me the book and I'll be happy to, to sign it and mail it back.
1: That's very, very generous, generous of you. So breeders can, uh, or or readers and and breeders can uh, reach out to you through email to share uh, or to get your address to send it. And then, um, you know, those, those flat rate priority envelopes uh, work really well for uh, putting a uh, self-addressed, you know, there postage on that stick it in the envelope sure. with the book so that you can easily uh, shoot That'd it back to them and uh and sure and then they have that autograph copy which i am going to do after we're done recording because i want i would love that that mm-hmm. autograph in that to you bet to finish off the touches of the this excellent book
2: the, I, I believe yeah the edition that i have of george templeton is autographed <laughs> wow did you did you know yeah. dr templeton or did you did you ever meet him no, he had passed on well before the Rabbit Research Center was started. However, wow. in, in one of the issues of the Journal of Applied Rabbit Research, Dr. Patton drove down to Grant's Pass in southern Oregon and interviewed his son. And it's, it was a wonderful uh, interview and article. Wow, that's pretty cool. About his father. And and they talked about everything, his his experiences at, at Fontana Station, his research, and, and especially the writing of, of the rabbit book. They got it all started.
1: That's pretty cool. Uh, sort of aside, when uh, when I learned about Dr. Templeton through your book and your work, I did some research because, I, I again, I, as I said mm. earlier, I'm just shocked to think about Southern California as a hotbed for rabbits and rabbit research. Yeah. And it was. It's sure. no longer. But that original yeah. rabbit research station started by Dr. Templeton in Fontana. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but it's today. It's a nursing home. The building is still there, but it's oh, a nursing really? home. And, and there's a I didn't know there's that. A, a, wow. a plaque out front that, that states exactly uh, its origin before it became what it currently is. Well, so that's pretty know? cool. Yeah. A, no, a, a great <laughs> a tribute to <laughs> uh, so much that uh, precipitated from uh, Fontana back, back in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Before we conclude, uh, I know you talk about this in your book, but uh, for listeners that maybe younger and that are going off to college or maybe in college mm. and they're, they're really into rabbits, Um what today are some careers or universities or studies that are that are that could be found or or pursued by kids that uh, want to do rabbits for for a career?
2: Well, um, let me be real honest um, there are not a lot of job opportunities, however, that you can dress it up in a certain way. Uh, there are many organizations that are that are focusing on on uh, communities and and food projects, food banks and uh, projects where uh, rabbits could be included as part of that th- that food production system. And, uh, of course, uh, rabbit youth projects such as 4-H. I know in Texas that as a first-year project, as an eight-year-old uh, rabbit project, is the most popular project in the state of Texas. And, of course, they need 4-H leaders and agents, you know, to train those kids uh, how to raise rabbits. Um, you can... Uh, Pursue interests, and I've gotten lots of messages over the years from students that go to universities that that uh, Like Alan and I we had a passion as kids when we were rabbits and you don't necessarily have to specialize in rabbits But you can do a a research thesis or dissertation project with rabbits to increase your your level of of rabbit knowledge Um, but again uh, we have to be realistic. There are very few jobs in, in the world that call for a rabbit specialist or expert. But again, it, it's it's how you dress it up, make it part of a of a exciting and dynamic uh, portfolio or package to to provide food for families in a sustainable way.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually quite similar to how I. Started my master's program. I never thought I'd study fashion. Mm-hmm. I'm a farmer, for gosh sakes! But, um, I raised mm-hmm. colored Angora goats, which are, na- you know, they're naturally colored, and they lend well to this, mm-hmm. you know, no dye sort of sustainable fashion movement. And I thought, yes. wow, this is this is the opportunity for me to get a master's degree and study uh, the micron diameter and the progress of colored Angora goats, and sure. and see if there's actually a place for them. In a in a greater industry like like sustainable fashion, so as you said, being creative yes. with how you study and take your passions, the the, yes. the sky's the limit. You just have to you just have to maybe be a little well, more inventive about it.
2: Yes, and and I've always have promoted uh, the Peace Corps and programs like Heifer International, and uh, that that sponsor uh, livestock development projects. So there are. Overseas opportunities, but but just very briefly, uh, even back when, when I'd finished my graduate degrees and I was job hunting, I was using the shotgun approach. I probably sent out over one hundred letters with resumes included, and those who responded, except for one case, all said I was overqualified. You see what I'm saying? Oh my gosh!
1: Wow. And that that's, one case though was Heifer International. <laughs> wow, and there are volunteer opportunities for for breeders to uh, share their knowledge. Correct. With heifer and uh, the program I worked with was farmer to farmer. So there are, are volunteer opportunities to travel yes. and to teach others about yes. raising rabbits. I mean, when, when uh, farmer to farmer approached me, I thought oh, I'm just a right. show b- person, you know, but, um, they said, Oh no, mm-hmm. just your basic understanding of, of breeding and management would be greatly beneficial. Absolutely. So, you know, check, yes. check the web for those sort of uh, volunteer opportunities because they certainly are out there and it's well, a great opportunity to travel.
2: I'll also mention that the World Rabbit Science Association has uh, has branch rabbit organizations, of course, all around the world. And you mentioned briefly the Philippines before. Um, I remember, and I wish I could remember her name, a, a very prominent ARBA uh, leader who I met in Malaysia about two or three years ago. And so she was teaching. Um, you know how to show rabbits and about rabbit production at at the conference uh, that we attended together, and so through the World Rabbit Science Association, anyone with a rabbit uh, interest, uh, sometimes we can make those connections for them to go and basically do an internship and get a, a wealth of experience overseas.
1: Absolutely, I believe you're talking about Aisha uh, Readoff yes. from Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, Aisha's a good friend of mine, and she's she's really spearheaded the yep. commercial rabbit project in. Malaysia the government's yes, offered some some uh, grants and subsidies to people that will promote rabbits as a as a food source and she's done an incredible sure. job in using social media to to tell people hey yes. eating rabbits is not only okay but it's
2: great for uh-huh. you and it's 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 and they breed like rabbits so why not yeah we were yeah we were involved in a rabbit meat cook off and that was one of my my wow. most rewarding activities overseas mm. we had a lot of fun with that one <laughs> The, the chefs yes. did a wonderful job making all these creative rabbit meat dishes there. And everyone was a first place in my book.
1: <laughs> wow. My favorite dish when I, when I traveled to to Malaysia, when it's rabbit is rabbit satay. Did you have that?
2: Oh yeah. Yes. On the skewers. Oh, so delicious. Mm-hmm.
1: It is. <laughs> all right. Dr. Luke for we've kept you long enough and so appreciate you being on here today and always being willing to share your knowledge, whether it's through RabbitCon or, to your students, um, and of course, in this latest edition of rabbit production. And again, uh, listeners and attendees of the ARBA convention in Reno, uh, the 2022 ARBA convention can find this latest edition, this wealth of knowledge that needs to be in every rabbit library. If you're a breeder, it'll be available at the KW cages booth in a limited supply and uh, check the KW Cage's website after convention for other opportunities to purchase this incredible book by Dr. Luke Farr and his colleagues. Um, and also, as you said, you may even find it on Amazon, where, where, where we all frequent these days for, for all of our shopping. Um, we end every podcast episode with asking our uh, our guests to envision their their perfect rabbit show. But uh, Dr. Luke Far, you've contributed greatly to the, the rabbit uh, field, but uh, you're not showing rabbits. So I'm going to ask you... Um, If you could envision the next, uh, maybe next 25 years, where would, what would it be like in terms of rabbits and and people and and what, what could you, what would you dream up for rabbits? Uh,
2: Globally speaking, uh, even now, uh, rabbits are just expanding in in leaps and bounds, which is uh, wonderful news. And I I believe uh, with current trends, uh, which are not so positive, I, I believe that the big push is for people to really um, get cr- more creative and, and create sustainable food systems in, in the name of food security where populations will have to become increasingly sustainable. Um, but I'll also mention uh, another growing trend is raising um, livestock and, and growing uh, food crops in cities uh, called uh, urban agriculture. In fact, at the last World Rabbit Science Conference held last year in in France, I I presented a paper on vertical rabbit farming in cities. Um, Just like you could grow plants in in horticulture or in greenhouses, um, some cities are forecasted soon, cities, to become food self-sufficient. Because it makes so much sense in terms of vertical integration and using less land and using solar um, radiation from the sun and recycling uh, water from rain and uh and and so on and so forth and so it, i you know it's very easy to be uh, down and, and pessimistic about the future but when you hear stories and forecasts like this by world experts its it's a good cause to get excited and and to be hopeful about the future
1: i love it how how, how can we not be optimistic after hearing that and to think about rabbits as a Mm -hmm. part of that, as a part of that equation makes, uh, makes any of us as rabbit geeks Mm -hmm. and and lovers, very excited. Dr. Lufark, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast episode, and thank you for your decades of contribution to the the world rabbit industry, um, all the way down to people like us that show rabbits. And again, uh, listeners can reach out to you by emailing you at slukfar at gmail.com. We'll have that in the show notes as well. And uh, everyone, don't forget to grab your latest copy of this incredible book. It's been uh, an, an incredible undertaking, and uh, we are lucky in rabbits to have it. And we're very lucky to have you. So thank you, Dr. Luke Farr.
2: Thank you, Alan. No, my pleasure.
0: Alan, what a great interview with Dr. Luke Farr.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure, a bucket list for me. I, I, I've i idolized that guy since I was a kid. And uh, to get him on the podcast, it's just, it's it's amazing. And when I heard that he was updating Rabbit Production again, I was like, oh my God, that was my go-to source as a kid. It's It continues to be. This newest edition is fantastic. Everyone's got to own a copy. Um, So for this education portion of the podcast, which we love to do, um, I went back and looked at some of Dr. Luke Forrest's scholarly articles from over the years. He's written over 200 and about rabbits, actually. So uh, in in this podcast, he does a little bit of visionary and and dreaming about backyard projects and how rabbits make a lot of sense um, on a small scale. And, And a paper that I found from him goes back to 1999. He presented it at the uh, World Rabbit Science Congress, which he talked about in his interview. And the paper is called Small-Scale Rabbit Meat Production in the Western Hemisphere, Back to Basics. And I'm just going to uh, pick some excerpts from this. I may ramble on, so don't fall asleep, everybody. But it's a, it's a really good paper, and it really underscores some of the things that that he touched on in, in his interview. So the paper goes something like this in the abstract. Uh, Dr. Luke Farr says this paper proposes a cottage industry model of rabbit microenterprise development to secure food and economic stability for rural based small farm families throughout the Western Hemisphere and to improve the image of rabbit production as a viable activity. And he introduces the the whole rabbit meat production sort of history uh, in his intro. And he says, the U.S. commercial meat rabbit industry was first developed in the 1920s and 1930s in Southern California. During World War II, raising rabbits was very popular because of national meat rationing, excluding, however, rabbit meat. And that was to support the military and the low cost of producing rabbit meat. In the 1950s, the infantile industry of rabbit meat was instrumental in the development of the formulated pelleted diet wire cages, metal feeders, and specialized breeds, such as New Zealand's and Californians, breeds we talk about today and management practices, which we all just take for granted. Those didn't come about until the 1950s and 60s. Dr. Lucifer goes on to say a strong market also existed back then that captured the consumers who were largely of, of Southern European descent. In the 1950s and 60s, U.S. commercial rabbit production system was imported to Europe, notably in France, Spain, and elsewhere in Europe on a commercial production where it was mostly heavily concentrated on these farms. More recent is the development of commercial rabbit farming in Central and South America and the Caribbean countries. Prior to this introduction in Europe, traditional production was aptly described as parkin as a cottage industry. This system typically involved rearing only a few breeding does in rustic hutches and feeding hand-cut forages, weeds, limited grains, and farm waste. In Hungary and in Poland back then and in other northern European countries, the rabbit meat industry continues in the 90s to be dominated by small-scale subsistence production who maintain only about 50 does. That's in contrast to the larger commercial-scale operations in uh, France, Italy, and Spain. Dr. Luke Farr uh, goes on to talk about a poor prognosis for commercial rabbit farming here in the U.S. He says, in the U.S., rabbit enthusiasts have struggled for years to develop an economically viable rabbit meat industry. Commercial fryer production, fryers are, of course, young meat rabbits, continue to be marginally profitable businesses relative to other livestock species, despite the the rabbit's astounding biological efficiency, you know, breeding like rabbits. Most rabbit producers operate a part-time business consisting of less than 50 breeding does, very similar to what was going on in Poland at the time. And he goes on and and brings up some local market ideas for this cottage industry. And he goes back to the basics. In the opinion of Dr. Luke Farr, in the Western Hemisphere, the rabbit should be primarily viewed as a backyard species mainly for family use or as a part-time enterprise with the potential for local cottage industry market development. Globally, other species such as ducks, geese, guinea fowl, and guinea pigs also represent regional cottage industries. Rabbit production can be certainly industrialized, but it should be clearly understood that this development can only be justified in special cases where economic conditions are highly favorable. In other words, a population that actually wants to eat rabbit. A 1978 yearbook of agriculture recommended that small producers should establish their own local markets if living more than 150 miles from a commercial processor. This would surely involve the majority of U.S. rabbit producers and would explain the prevalence of small operations, and small meaning less than 50 does. Dr. Lou goes on to talk about the uh, benefits of integration. A small-scale rabbit enterprise supports integrative practices, gardening, nursery production, and vermiculture, as well as potential local markets for rabbit byproducts, such as tan skins, foot charms, rabbit manure as the organic fertilizer for gardens, which he talked about in his interview, flower beds, and worms for fishing bait. All of these things supplement small farm revenue, especially for low-income families who sell their produce in the marketplace. Then he goes on to talk about small-scale rabbit prop, uh, production and opportunities in this cottage industry as opportunities for youth, which as we heard in the interview, Dr. Luke Far started in rabbits as a as in Southern California as a kid, selling and raising meat rabbits and crossbreeding and learning about color genetics. And that were that's where his fascination began and that's like that was a catalyst to his academic career. Uh, so he goes on to say, as a family-oriented activity, a rabbit project is ideal for youth living in rural and peri-urban areas. In Texas, a 4-H rabbit project is one of the most popular activities among its youngest club members. The children learn basic responsibility and animal management skills, which can lead to other projects and be applied to life situations. Similar youth clubs and rabbit projects have been reported in Belize, The slogan from the National Rabbit Project in Ghana, West Africa, is Grow Rabbit, Grow Children, aptly promotes the high nutritional value of rabbit meat. In Guatemala, a rural mission school established a successful regional rabbit project after teaching rabbit lessons to children and regularly serving rabbit to them for their lunches. The children also were required to assist in daily management of the stock. Graduates took breeding rabbits to their own home villages to introduce this activity to offset malnutrition in rural communities. Another project in Peru involved an orphanage in which children learned basic agricultural skills, including how to raise rabbits and grow gardens. Later, the children were resettled in communities where these vital skills contributed to a better life and quality of life. In Egypt, village Rabbit projects, which directly involved youth, reportedly decreased the rate of youth migration from rural to urban areas. Migration of youth to inner cities is a chronic social problem throughout Latin America. The rabbit's small size and low cost of production when raised as a backyard species supports such worthy youth-engaged activities and opportunities for building stronger communities. And then... Uh, It's a fascinating article, but the conclusions of uh, of this longer piece, so to kind of sum it up, Dr. Luke Farr says, rabbit scientists, like himself, hold the keys of knowledge and responsibility to direct their nation's government with respect to the most appropriate scale of production for rabbit farming. What image should we set? Rabbit production as a commercial or as a cottage industry, he asks. Rabbit scientists who advise policymakers and livestock industry leaders in countries where there is not a tradition of rabbit meat consumption should exercise caution. In the Western Hemisphere, a poor track record of success with commercial rabbit production has, in many cases, mitigated otherwise positive attitudes and interests in small-scale rabbit projects that could benefit the poor. This is in spite of the high potential of rabbit projects as an intervention for human development. If a nation's goal is to increase the standard of living for its citizens, would this best be served by commercial rabbit farms and plants, which are owned by wealthy businesses and entrepreneurs who provide limited low-wage employment opportunities. In developing countries, commercial-scale poultry and swine production has failed to benefit the poor, probably also true for commercial rabbit production. Rather, only the business owner and urban consumers benefit. The alternative is back-to-basics approach, which would be to develop small-scale rabbit projects aimed at poor farm communities whereby food security and increased income could be directly realized. Opportunities to achieve major impact indeed exist to foster human development and improve the image of rabbit production. And again, that comes from Dr. Luke article from the World Rabbit Science Congress in 1999 titled Small-Scale Rabbit Meat Production in the Western Hemisphere. Back to Basics.
0: I love that. Um, I love information. I actually met Dr. Luke Farr in Malaysia a few years ago. I was judging a show that they held in conjunction with an international symposium on meat rabbits. They had representatives from France there. Um, Dr. Luke Farr was there. Um, it was really cool. I wish in the U S we had more access to some of this information. Um, so the quote I chose talks about that. It's from the character Sherlock Holmes, of course, written by Sir Alfred Conan Doyle. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data.
1: Hmm. I love it. Great quote as always. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in and see you next time and see you in Reno. While this podcast would not
2: be possible without the American Rabbit Raiders Association, it does not constitute an official communication
1: of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.